When you hear the phrase first-gen American, what comes to mind? Oscar Velasquez, a first-generation American, wants to enlighten your mind to everyday life as a first-gen in today's America. There is a perception in today's society, and Oscar is going to dive in and dissect the reality of being a first-gen. Join Oscar and his guests from all walks of life, discussing their trial and tribulations in today's America. Now your host, Oscar Velasquez. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of First Gen American. I'm your host, Oscar Velasquez. Please welcome our wonderful guest, Miguel Andres and Francelis Quinones. I, I know that the public has gotten a little bit of... Um, some information to be able to read on our Facebook, um, forward slash, Facebook forward slash First Gen American, which our listeners had a little brief introduction, but uh, I want to elaborate on that. These guys are culture consultants uh, where they have built a great, great support system and encourage, an encouraging environment to help foster growth, productivity, and deeper conversations and love for the youth and social justice work. They offer trainings, healing circles, management, and leadership skills. Under the circumstances, these guys built a significant team to build activities and also explore the world in America's history to address and tackle social justice issues that they've experienced by bringing these tools to businesses, schools, sports, teams, nonprofit organization, and family. Truly an amazing work and truly blessed to have you guys. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Um, I, I was I was privileged enough to, to touch base with you guys before. And truly, what an amazing story. And I'm glad that we're able to um, have this platform to, show, to share um, this, this amazing uh, venture that you guys have taken on. Uh, Francelis, yes. can you tell us a little bit about uh, your upbringing that has led you to where you are now? Sure. I... Um... I was born in the Dominican Republic and I uh, have an older sister that was born in New York City. My grandmother, nice. my cousins, my uncles, my aunts lived in Washington Heights um, all uh, for many, many years. And when I came here, I was in third grade already and was in um, Manhattan schools where everyone looked like me. I was just another kid. And in the fourth grade, because of the crack epidemic, um, we were living in the Bronx and we were looking outside on the streets and there was violence and there was um, all kinds of fear and crack vials mm -hmm. that were littering the streets between right outside my home to my schools. And my parents uh, knew family members here that were doing better and had a better success rate and had more exposure to different things and said, we have to get out of there. So we left the Bronx and I moved to Revere, Mass. And for the first time, I was black. Mm -hmm. I was different. Mm -hmm. I was something else. And it was a journey of figuring out um, language, you know, the acquisition of English. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be at a time where they had ESL classes and um, it was a transition. We got to learn and grow in. And then um, little by little, I, I pushed and strived for English and mastery in, in almost everything I did. So I pushed to be the best in everything. Um, and I graduated. I went to UMass Amherst. Um, I did all of these things. I went to um, my master's in England and University of Essex. And it was an amazing experience. All these transformative experiences showing me how others live, how other things are done. Um, only to come back here and enter the kind of... Um, nonprofit world in Boston um, through citizen schools yeah. uh, and seeing how some of the young adults or the, the students that we were um, servicing were living and what they were experiencing was so drastically unjust. It was so wrong. And then I left that um, nonprofit and went to work at a private school in Cambridge where I could see this amazing facility for fourth graders uh, that was triple the size of any classroom I taught in Boston or any classroom I was in. And I, I was shocked. Um, you had fourth graders exhibiting and um, analyzing real fossil, um, real fossils, dinosaur fossils awesome. in a huge entire lab mm -hmm. uh, when we didn't even have services that were um, due to the, the young uh, people in Boston. 
And it was such a disparity. And everything in me was was just like, no, this is not right. Um, mind you, this is also coming from a background where my mother was all about it. My mother was an activist. My mother was out there in the street. She was a union organizer. She believed in people. She believed in the workers. She believed in our rights. Wow. So all of that background. And then me being able to witness life in all of these different aspects of the world mm -hmm. uh, made me say, I have to do something about this. There's no way. It just It was a fire that burned in me in a way that I had to, I, I couldn't ignore. I had to act on. And um, that led me down the road to go back into the classroom um, and kind of teach within the system, make young people aware that you are in a system that is set up against you and it is your right to fight back. And it was just a very powerful way to be able to to engage and young people are fun they make me laugh they bring me life um they they have some something about them that just kind of is so pure and raw and real and the messages that society is giving them makes them feel less than makes them feel unworthy makes them feel like their voice doesn't matter and as a history teacher, I got to show them all different examples of young people who made a difference by, you know, Ruby Bridges as a, an, you know, integrating um, the, the schools in um, the 60s and um, the, the it's so many examples right. of young people in activism and changing their world and changing society. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a it was a privilege to be able to be in Boston Public Schools and, and talk about that history with the intention of developing activism, agency, mm -hmm. of inspiring hope, of, of, of hoping that, that you can dream, you know, allowing yourself to dream, giving yourself permission to be more than what somebody says you are. Not only that, but you have it firsthand with your mom at home mm -hmm. and the amazing work that she was doing. So that inspired mm -hmm. you and that, that, that fired your passion. Absolutely. And, and, and definitely when you speak, I definitely feel that energy and that passion behind the person. Um, truly incredible work. Miguel, you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now in the community? Um, so, yeah, currently I'm working with a, a couple of organizations. One of them is POSE, um, which means for power of self um, education in the community of Haverhill. Um, and they run a, a, a facility called Coco Brown. And their whole um, agenda is to basically help educate the community so that they can empower themselves. I'm also working with an organization called Leave Mysteries Ministries um, with Jesus Ruiz. Um, and he basically is a former gang member um, who spent a lot of time behind a wall and got, um, you know, know, basically turn into a Christian and is doing a lot of great work in the community by providing services for people who are in need of food and, and shelter and, and are um, in need of recovery and, and so forth. And um, I'm also currently working for the Center for Hope and Healing, which is a rape crisis center in the community of Lowell. Um, and I am basically the Engaging Men and Boys um, project director currently there. Um, and I continue to do also um, work with other nonprofit organizations like UTEC, um, City Year, every once in a while, which I, I was an AmeriCorps member um, when I was a young person. Um, uh, right after high school, um, sometimes I go back and do some trainings and or speak and, and tell my story. So uh, I do a lot of that stuff. Also do a lot of work with music. So um, I'm also a basketball coach at Bradford Christian um, Academies. Go Sentinels. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of different things that I'm involved with uh, as, as far as activism work. What inspired you to uh, <clears throat> to get involved and, and reach out to your community? What, what was your background like before you you got inspired? Um, yeah, well, I, I guess for me, the story that um, that I share with folks is basically my father was murdered before I was born. Um, that sort of um, catapulted my mom to move to the United States where she had a sister. Um, and I was basically she found out that she was pregnant and I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Um during that time period, I grew up during a crack epidemic. My mom didn't really seem to understand what was happening. And we were under a Section 8 housing. Um, she was a single mom. I did have a stepfather that was in and out of our lives. Um, and, and, and basically, you know, she tried to move from one you know, project building to the next project building and just finding the same sort of violence outside and, um, you know, the drugs and, and the police um, brutality sometimes that we would face, um, the poor education in some of the schools. She was just trying to find something better and she couldn't because 
Um, she didn't just have access to that. And um, I think that going through that, there was a teacher that I had, I remember his name was Mr. Hannigan at the James P. Timothy School. And I remember my mindset was like, I'm, I just want to make money and get out of here, right? And, and I wanted to be an NBA player or a <laughs> baseball player or a rapper, like, like, you know, like most kids growing up in the hood. Like that's the only way that you've seen someone reach success outside of um, selling drugs, you know what I mean? And yeah. uh, outside of, of doing the other things that, that you know, um, obviously were illegal, right, at the time. But that was what we had access to, right? Mm -hmm. I walked out outside of my house as a 10-year-old and someone would ask me, hey, do you have any crack? Mm -hmm. And I knew in my mind, I'm a math person, that's $20 right there that I could have just made, you know? Yeah. And and that's hard to turn down when, you're, when you don't have any food in your refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And when you started to realize history, when I started listening to people like Tupac Shakur and and, and Nazia Jones and, and others, um, Wu-Tang Clan, I started to hear the similar um, stories that I was facing and, 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 and NWA. And then I know that some of their music is problematic for sure. Mm -hmm. And there was a message within their music. But it resonated with That us. resonated with me and that actually educated me. I'm like, okay, these are things that they're not teaching me in school. Mm -hmm. um, so then I was able to join a program called Teach Boss and it was the first time that it was happening and it was the thought process that my teachers at Dorchester High had was that if we get young people, teach other young people, we might have an easier time in helping them move forward. So I did that program for a summer and that basically really launched my career in education because the teacher that I had there, we basically were helping young people that went to summer school, right, that failed their classes to be able to pass during the summer so that they can go to the next grade the following year. So literally, I'm a junior and I got to see summer kids in that summer program, right? Well, not program, because they were like in summer school, become freshmen the next year in my mm -hmm. high school. <laughs> yeah. So it was very interesting. And then, you know, God works in mysterious ways. So the school that I was working at was the Woodrow Wilson School, which I would later become a campus director within the organization Citizen Schools, where I would meet my wife um, um, <laughs> at that time. Nice. What a blessing. You guys stay busy. Yes. You guys, stay, <laughs> you guys stay busy, that's for sure. Uh, just want to touch a little bit about uh, on this, uh, Francelis. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the the hate within our own Latino community. When you speak, you touch you touched mm -hmm. a little bit about the Dominican uh, Dominican Republic, excuse me, and Haitian yes community, mm -hmm. and how we've always as Latinos said that we have the backs of uh, Black Lives Matter movement. With your experience uh, teaching history, can you touch a little a little base on that? Sure. I um, I had the the opportunity in college to study abroad in Dominican Republic, and when I was there, I took an anti-Haitianism uh, class to learn about the Dominican Haitian um, background. And yeah. there is um, it's just it's just so many layers, and um, being able to see how Dominican Republic was the first colonized country to win its independence from another colonized nation. Um, there is such strife between Haitian and Dominican based on that history, on the history of what Trujillo dictatorship did to the Haitians. Um, genocide being the worst, but there are so many different layers of the, the impact. Um, but then you also see that in our own cultures. We have internalized that, where it's about different shades of color Right. So it's not racism per se, but it's colorism. Right. Trigañita, morenita, you know, all of these different levels of, of, of shades that make you better or less, whether your hair is curlier or, you know, more coily or whatever. There's so many. Yeah, there's so many, you know, criticisms about the, the way you look and, and you present. And in the classroom, uh, I taught American history and it started with slavery. And I was like, listen, I can't I can't start talking to Latino and black children about slavery in the way that you're presenting it in this history book. Right. It doesn't start on the slave ships. It doesn't start in the Middle Passage. This starts in Timbuktu yeah. when we were kings and queens and beautiful and powerful yeah. and innovative and brilliant. Mm -hmm. That's where the story starts. So that's where you have to start building that kind of sense of self. Right. That sense of self doesn't start with a negative story. And I think that that's the thing that we as society are missing. We're missing big picture and we take only chunks mm. and are not understanding who we are truly. And that's where our power lies. Once you know your history, you know your power, yeah. you know your beauty, you know your strength, you know your worth, you know your purpose. Right. You are put here on purpose for a purpose. 
So I think that that's where that race and, and ethnicity and colorism kind of can be countered when we start knowing our history, knowing our, our, what we, where we come from. Wow. You see why I married this person? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like falling in you love with you all over again just oh. watching you. You have a queen. You have a smart queen for sure. Miguel, uh, your story with working on nonprofits and, and building programs, can you give us a little detail about some of your experiences as a as a person of color and the and the Latino working in this sector? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that what I had learned early because when I graduated high school, I was 17. I went right into AmeriCorps at City Year Boston, where the whole um, thought process was to help us um, with our goals, right? I wanted to become a teacher, so I was in an educational program, um, working at the Condon Elementary School in South Boston. And then from there, I went to citizen schools where I worked there for eight years. And I met wonderful people from all walks of life. We had mm. people that were there from different countries, you know, and it, it was beauty. The whole idea was to have diverse groups so that they can learn from each other, right? So that we can combine the person that had the street smarts with the person with the book smarts, with the person that had a lot of education and had a lot of experience with the person that has some education or the person that was inspired to get more education, you know? So mm. that that experience taught me that people are different, not just by the color of their skin, not by where they're from, but they're just individually different. Mm -hmm. And I had um, a person named Kevin Fleming, who was my director, and John Werner, who was my director, and, and Kendra Hoy was my director, all three different people, all three different races, um, if you want to call it races. I always say that there's only one race, right. um, and, and people always get it twisted. My whole thought process of what racism is um, is really more connected to power. But anyhow, um, they spent a lot of time on their own grooming me. You know, mm -hmm. showing me, telling me, because I didn't have any college experience at that time. Luckily, with um, the scholarship that I earned from my education award from City Year Boston, I basically went to Bunker Hill Community College and was able to take some courses, and that started to sharpen me. But the real sharpening happened in these nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they were take, taking the time, Ned Reimer and Eric Schwartz, who co-founded Citizen Schools, really invested in me. Every Friday, we had trainings. You know, there was a woman by Tulane Montgomery who I, like— Learned so much just watching her, you know, um, and, and there's a host of people that I can name, you know, um, that really spend that extra time to, to make sure that I became the leader that I wanted to be, but also the leader that I needed to be in order to be able to 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 get the job done co correctly and, and, and impactfully. Mm -hmm. And I think that I was very lucky to be in certain nonprofits that really cared about the community and really cared about education and helping these young people move forward. Wow. Mm. I see I see a lot of connection within us. You know, um, we talk about different sectors of the country, you know, Boston, Bronx, Brooklyn, and we hear inner city problems and the disconnect with the with the youth and and we we as as the when we were younger, we always looked for that role model. And granted we had our parents, but our parents weren't around because they were trying to strive for that American dream to give mm -hmm. us that opportunity that we have today. But where do you, where do you find that the struggle still to this day with the youth, with the youth is, especially in the inner cities and the disconnect? I mean, technology, we talk about knowing our history, but too much information is, can, can be bad because if it's not the right information. Mm. What do you how, what do you feel that this the disconnect with the youth is that the youth is that there's still some type of uh, barrier, you know, especially mm. within the kids, within color. I mean, my my quick answer to that is that you have to. What my wife was talking about, Francelis, was about history. Right. And the more you learn history, then the more you realize that information wasn't meant for people that look like me. Right. 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 I was not. Right set up to be successful. In fact, I had teachers tell me that by 19 or 25, I will be either dead or in jail. Mm. Wow. That's what I was told. We also knew that by statistics, people were creating jails based on third grade test results right. because 65% of the population in, in, in who are incarcerated read at an elementary school level. This happened in Rhode Island, mm -hmm. right? Um, there are messages that I have received that totally told me that, you know, um, you bother me. When you go to downtown Boston as a kid, you notice a huge difference from the people that took the red line to Ashmont 
and the people that took the red line to Braintree. And it was very evident that when those doors closed, most of the people that went on that red line to Braintree did not look like me. Right. And I had experiences where I would go to Braintree and even go to the mall and be followed. And even one time, um, the owner of the mall came down and, like, talked to us. Like, who does that? You know, it it was impressionable because I was like, okay, that's cool. The owner came to see us. Wow, that's dope. But really what was happening was they were nervous. They were scared. They assumed that we were there for a reason other than, like, we just want to go to the mall. What what kids would actually do on a Friday night, you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, and speaking of that experience, I've also had the experience where I was coming out of the Canberra's Galleria Mall, got to JFK train station. Me and four buddies of mine are walking. We're, like, 15 years old. And next thing you know, police are surrounding us. I got guns put on my face. We were told not to move. We were told not to speak in Spanish because they were consider it a threat. We were told um, that they were basically looking for people with guns and they were asking us if we had guns. And I was just like, man, I, <laughs> I'm an honor roll student. Like, yeah. I, like mm. I don't want to get in trouble. Like, yeah. what's going on? You know, and, and, and what people don't understand is like, when you have, and I can talk more and more about experiences like that, and not not to say that cops are bad, because I have family members that are cops. I have best friends that are cops. We 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 break bread with people who are police officers or former police officers. I have people who who were sheriffs um, in my family, you know. So, but it doesn't mean that these experiences ain't real and that they don't happen. And when they happen with young people, obviously, especially when they get pulled over, we get really nervous, you know, and and scared. Yeah, I mean, and in the same light. The uh, society doesn't look at young people as having valid opinions and being um, reliable or be you know being um, up to good. They are definitely um, assumed bad, um, and I think there is um, there's a divide and there's a lack because. You don't believe in young people. You don't give them a voice. You don't give them a platform. You don't allow them to really um, explore certain things that allow them to grow and become into the citizens that you're looking for. But a lot of people say the system is broken. Mm. And um, I have to push back and say the system is working exactly as it was designed. Mm. The problem is that they, they're not the problem. I should say the blessing is that there is no specific words in the Constitution that actually keep me out. So I'm here. And I would say to all young people listening, you're here and you are represented in that constitution. Mm. What you have to do is step up and step into it. It is yours. Claim those rights. Walk in that light. Walk in that power. Because the understanding that that was made for you and not, it was made for the rich white landowning men who were a part of that constitutional convention. They didn't know that I was going to exist today. But I do. And that's the thing. I think that there is a divide and there's a gap because we don't understand the power that we have been given. And there is an intentionality to keep that power as it was with the founding fathers. The problem is that people need to understand that, that that's not written there. It doesn't say just the founding fathers get this. It says we the people. And that includes so many of us. And we have fought year after year after year, uh, whether you're talking about voting rights for women uh, who fought for hundreds of years, you know, to, to have that. Or you're talking about uh, Voting Rights Act 1965, where black people were uh, on the streets with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and so many other leaders uh, to gain those rights. There are there still should be a fight today to gain access, to gain full access to the rights that we have as an American people. I'm so proud to be an American because America says that I have the right to be here and do this. And I have the right to say, this is not working. Let me fix it. I have a voice and a power to say, you know what? I don't like this experience. And I have the right to elect my local representatives that can speak for my community. Mm-hmm. And I can then vote in every two-year elections to make sure I put the right people in Congress because they're the ones that know me well. When you talk about the presidency, you're talking about electoral college and all of these other things that get in the way of your representative or your representation directly. But we have to own and understand. So miseducation and uh, and, and, and a, a lot of information that is contrary to that is what distracts people, makes people feel hopeless. It makes them feel unheard, unseen, unvaluable. Right. So in, in, in order to get bridge that gap, we need to present that truth that you have the power. You have a voice here. You are represented and we the people and let's own it. We don't have to play victim. We can walk in that power and know our rights. And that's the problem with like systemic stuff. 
it was built in this way. It was built to benefit a certain group. Um, so we have the voice and the power to change that. And that's the beauty of the Constitution. And that's what we're trying to do within our program is how do you change those that culture? And and that's yeah. some of the stuff that I know Pose currently is doing uh, with Dennis um, um, Everett Hobbs, where he um, um, basically is working with the police department in Haverhill and working with young people with Andy Polanco and the, and the VIP program. And they're having conversations, right? They, they are talking, youth are talking with police officers and they're getting to know each other. And so it's like, how do you, the, the, the key thing that I've learned throughout the years is that the culture of an environment can change everything, right? right? And if you are able to have um, things that, um, that young people can learn from as far as like values, for instance, you know, mm -hmm. having integrity, yes. right? It's a huge thing. Having respect. How does respect look like? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for me? Having those kind of conversations, no matter what background, again, no matter what color or skin you have, if we're able to, no matter what position you have, if we're able to have conversation and respectfully listen to each other and I interrupt each other while, while we're talking, right? And, and, and then do what they call um, active listening, right? Well, you kind of like take, take a second to like actually understand what the person is telling you and sharing with you and then build together. Cause um, you know, we all want the same things at the end of the day, right? Yeah, we all want course. to be able to feed our families. Mm -hmm. We all want opportunity, right? And we all want to be able to, to freely exist without being um, violated, without having violence being, being turned to us. Mm -hmm. And currently we don't have that. So when people are talking about people rioting and looting and, and all that stuff within their protests and when people are talking about people swearing in their in their music, you know, Tupac used to say that he put a lot of stuff in his music videos, mm -hmm. not because he re necessarily represented that or wanted that, but because he wanted to show America what was happening in these ghettos, right. what was happening in the community so that it can stop it, mm -hmm. so that it can help stop it. Mm -hmm. So while he's doing his work and I'm a kid listening and I'm looking outside my window and I see a dead body there. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering to myself, why is this happening, especially in a city where we have the mecca of colleges? How does the smartest people in the world ride the red line to MIT and Harvard University, and yet we have some of the most, um, you know, my school, my high school, for instance, on that same red line, you know, failing every single year? And us students being told that we are going to lose our accreditation, meaning that we will not have this seal that's supposed to go in our um, um, graduation certificate, which basically will mean that I will not be able to go to college. Right. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell you? For four years in my high school, I was not college prep, but yet this is a college prep high school. How am I supposed to then beat the odds? And then when I have Section 8 and I start working, my rent goes from $84 to something dollars well, wait a minute, I'm making only $135 on a stipend as an AmeriCorps member, but you raise mm -hmm. my rent. Well, how am I supposed to go to, to, go to school mm. and feed myself and do all of that? And by the way, I'm 17. I don't have a dad. That wasn't a choice that I made. My mom left. Wasn't a choice that I made. But yet I showed up to school every day. Mm -hmm. I graduated. I applied myself to, um, to this program. You know, where I had to fight my mom to get her signature to, to be put on it because guess what? Like, without your signature, I'm still not an adult, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and, and, and despite these odds, I was able to, to march forward because I knew that education was the key. Yeah. Um, and some of those odds are intentional. So you're talking about I had the blessing to work in Boston public schools, but also in Western public schools that was, um, you know, on the a complete opposite spectrum. And the what I was able to witness was such a difference in the approach to learning. There was a free flow. There was no whistles, which surprised me. You don't understand how many schools in Boston use whistles as a way to move uh, students from one class to another. And what I noticed was a culture of, you know, be a good worker, do your duty, Versus a culture of how do you lead, giving freedom to lead and and be the CEO. So you're it, it's it's uh, like a factory of CEOs versus a factory of workers, mm -hmm. and there's a very different messaging. And that's all about culture, and the processes, and the way you live, and the way you expect people to behave and inter interact and engage. And and if we're able to kind of knock those expectations down and build a different culture, you have a lot more people that are going to be thriving, you know? I want the listeners to know, when there's a moment of pause, I'm, I'm absorbing everything that you guys are saying and, and my guests because truly some 
some amazing, impactful individuals here. This question is for either of you. Uh, do you feel that there's a lack of representation for the people of color and Latinos in the nonprofit world? And why is that? Hmm. Yes, uh, because you have very specific grants and uh, requirements to access um, a lot of things in the nonprofit. There's a lot of language that you have to get through. There's a lot of uh, opportunities that are because I know someone and um, there's there's a lot of closed doors. So a lot of the nonprofits that I see, I see a lot of white leadership and um, brown workers, mm. um, the people that can get on the streets and make the connection and make it real. The people that can sell their stories to engage others, the people that can really the movers and shakers of bringing that work to the actual people that they're servicing are usually brown and black people out there. And you're talking about then leadership that doesn't represent that. And that's just been my experience to see that. So I do think it's harder because um, you have to find people that are willing to invest in you. And you have to convince them that you're worth it. Mm. And that's a harder fight for people of color than for most others. And I think it depends also on the intention, right? Where my experience is that when programs, nonprofits start, they start with the people and they start with the folks in the community. So the job requirement is not as big as when they become national, let's say. Right now you're adding different components to your program. Before it was a program where it was all like kumbaya and yeah. and and about the soft skills, which I think is so important. Right, mm -hmm. leadership, um, being able to to be yourself, being honest, having courage. Right, going up on stage and 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 doing a play and stuff like that. And then when you start throwing education, not that there is a lack of uh, people of color that are that don't have the credentials but people of color who have the credentials still have bills to pay right. so they're not going to settle for a $35,000 job right when they have a a, a, a debt of almost over $100,000 right it doesn't make sense for them to do that so what that does is then that creates a gap now where you don't have a pool of people of color now applying because of how you change things, because now it's a requirement for them to have a certain set of skills that obviously they don't necessarily have because of how their high school education was. And I think people miss that. I think the other part is that you're right in a sense of leadership and being able to give people opportunities. I think that people get stuck on sustainability. How do we move it forward? What's the hottest and latest thing that people are putting in um, as far as funding sources? And that's why sometimes I feel like federal funds can be a trap. Because mm. you're chasing the dollar and then you're forgetting the purpose why you created the program to begin with. And by the way, the program was created with people of color mm. for the most part. And what you can't copy, Corbin copy, is you can't do what Miguel does in California. You got to find the Miguel of California right. to do what California needs, wow. right? You need to find that young person from Rhode Island. You need to find that young person from Texas and have the people from the community take ownership and be a part of the solution. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that I admired about Citizen Schools when we were first starting. We were looking at people from the community to help educate people from the community. That was the whole basis, you know? Um, and I think that that's what's missing. And, and when I see these organizations and programs grow, I see the, the the difference. And yet they still want that. They're, they're trying to figure out. I've been hired in certain places and they're like, oh, we want to bring the culture back. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we want to bring, you know, the, the swag and everything. Well, it's like, well, you can't, do that and at the same time have the kind of requirements for the job that you're having because now you're so busy with sustainability that you're not developing people mm. and i always caution people it's not about how many people of color they have it's about how long do they stay there right retention is a key indicator of the success of that organization if you have an organization where multiple people are constantly leaving well there's something internally that's happening for those people to leave and what is that? You know, and that's different from everybody. Um, but yeah, that's my two cents around that. Let's talk about what's what's your plan on consulting work and how did you come about starting this business? Our plan is to um, make waves, make waves that change our society. 
Um, it's it starts uh, a wave we would define as a transformed person. It starts with the individual. We can't do the work we do without having done the work we have already done for ourselves, right? So counseling, therapy, um, some identity work, figuring out who I really am and what I'm about and what I'm yeah. here, right? I have a set of gifts and talents that speak into what I'm supposed to be doing, what my purpose is. And um, I think that that's the way that we want to make that impact. We want to help um, change culture by helping individuals figure themselves out, uh, address some of their biases, address some of their upbringing, uh, challenge some of the status quo that keeps it um, keeps it separate, keeps it uh, keeps the systems of oppression um, in in order and operating. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can start within ourselves. And and we can't just a lot of nonprofits fall short where they say they have an answer to a community that they didn't poll. They didn't research. They didn't engage themselves in right. to know the people, right? right? But they want to fix it. They want to help. But they have a list of answers that have nothing to do, no reflection on the actual people living there and existing there. The disconnect. There's a disconnect, absolutely. And I think any business would fail in that way. And that's where where we're stepping in with a, a rich history and understanding of world and American history, a rich understanding of people in general, of how young people think and how they grow. Um, we're, we're trying to figure out one person at a time, how do you change the culture in this country to be more inclusive and to be more welcoming? We can address so many different issues by having that core understanding that we have the power. We just have to shift certain things that we do and certain things that we believe. But those things will never move until the individual starts to see it. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And then when you know what you don't know, you have a duty to go figure that out, answer those questions. And once you start to answer those questions, then you can begin to believe and buy in to something that will cause social justice change and transformation. Yeah, I think it's also about breaking the molds. I always caution people when we start saying things like, you know, Black Lives Matters means this, or they do this. Puerto Ricans do this, mm. or they do that. People who have been in gangs do this, or they do that. People who are Christian are this, and they do that. Demo I mean, I can go on and on, right? right? We spit lies sometimes without meaning to. But a lot of the stuff that people say when they start that way, automatically to me, it's not true. Because they're people who are different. Mm -hmm. And just because you support a specific thing, it doesn't mean that you support everything that comes with it or that you have seen on TV or have heard on the radio or heard from a friend or whatever it may be. So it has to be conversations. Mm -hmm. This is the thing that people don't want to spend time on because we're so busy trying to dot our I's and yeah. cross our T's. Right. We're so busy with our checklist that we need these boxes that need to be, you know, reported on or whatever it may be. And we don't spend time breaking bread with somebody and having right. breakfast with them yeah. and having lunch with them. And, hey, how you doing? How's your family doing? Mm. Oh, you're going to have an event? Let me go support that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, we need to be um, able to loosen up a little bit. Mm. And build <laughs> relationships. Know? Build relationships, have conversation. Because to me, that was the most powerful thing. You know, my my when I had that job, that was my first official job at City Year, I, I, I was being sent to South Boston. If you know the history of South Boston, you know a kid from Dorchester does not want to be in South Boston. First of all, we're not welcomed in yeah. South Boston, yeah. right? And I can tell you stories about that. But that experience being there, you know, and after I came to the leaders and I said, you guys are crazy, you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get me killed, right? They was like, no, we think that you're going to be great at this school, right? And I learned so much from people who were from that community by being in that community, and I had a, 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 a program director, um, Elliot Epps, who who was from South Carolina and had that that Southern draw. I was never exposed to people from South Carolina. The only thing that I was exposed to was what I saw on TV. So that 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 draw that he had made me nervous hmm. because automatically I said racist in my head. If I'm being honest, right? Because that's what I was that's what I was taught by watching TV. Right. This guy was the most amazing person. He was just like, Miguel, you have this in you. He made me believe in myself at a time where I needed someone to believe in me. And this is a person who was from a different culture, a different color skin than I was. But he was invested in me. 
And that showed me something different. And there's so many people in our organization and other organizations that do these things from, from, from a multiple of backgrounds. And we miss that when we get into conversations and we say, well, these Democrats, these Trump supporters, these Biden people, you know, we miss all of that. Right. And it just fuels hate. And it just fuels adversity mm -hmm. and it just creates more division. Right. And one of the things that I learned by being part of, of, of West Church in, in Haverhill is that you have to approach everything with love. And if you start at that point, then I think these kind of conversations can go differently. The guard goes down. Mm. The approach is easier. Right. The conversations are warmer. And trust me, I had to learn that. Because yeah. coming from the streets, you learn somebody touches you. You touch them right back. Right. Somebody does something to your little brother, mm -hmm. you step up and you and you handle it. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's always with violence yeah. because we don't want more violence to be perpetuated mm -hmm. to us. But what we end up learning sometimes the hard way is that that never stops it. In fact, it, what, what it does is creates more violence. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think that street mentality, especially in, in the boroughs that we grew up in, it's like when you see somebody and. We're so guarded as young men, as young women. And we're so protected. We're trying to protect our image. We're trying to protect our, our, inner, our inner souls, you know, our spirit. That when we're walking down the street and somebody looks at you, you're like, what are you looking at? <laughs> but in reality, you're like, mm. are you looking at me? Mm. You know what I'm saying? So I, I feel like that, that guard, that disconnect is... But it, it's true. It's true. I mean, as Latinos, you know, somebody touch your little sister, your little brother. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And, and it's funny what, what you're saying. Jay-Z talks about that in his yeah. 444 yeah. Um, documentary where he talks about like when you're walking in the hood and people have that same kind of reaction. Right. It's like, what you staring at? Yeah. It's really like their insecurity coming out. Right. Mm. Do you see me? Right. Do you see what's happening to me? Yeah. You know what I mean? And you don't want to be looked as as vulnerable because we know that there are, are sharks out there and wolves out there that right. are looking for vulnerability so they can, you know, do Take what they got to do, it. right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it definitely has to do with um, us having the opportunity to discuss, hey, um, Brene Brown says this, right? What is the story that you're telling yourself? Hey, Francie, I noticed that you um, kind of like did that after I said something. The story that I'm telling myself is that, you know, you are mad at me is, right. is there truth to that and then start that dialogue because a lot of times what we believe is happening what we think is happening oftentimes i found that it's not actually true right right we get triggered and we and we create the story and if we don't have information from somebody we fill it in mm -hmm. right. we have talked a little bit about education what do you think takes to motivate a young person to want to do better for themselves i think um it requires helping that young person see who they are. It requires helping that young person know that they're valuable, um, know that they have something to contribute, know that they have worth and power. I think it requires um, asking that young person to step outside of their comfort zone and dream, give them permission to... Um, see themselves in a place that maybe their families or society has said that they can't go to. And I think once you begin to open that idea that, oh, I can be this or I can do this, uh, give them a little successes, give them the opportunities to shine, to lead, to speak up, uh, give them the opportunity to research something that actually matters to them. Give them the opportunity to find, you can learn how to read by reading something you love, right. right? For me, it was mystery books, just like my daughter, Isis. She, <laughs> we, we are both Agatha Christie fans. I could sit there and read mysteries all day. And um, there are other young people that wanna read about music or wanna read about artists or, or whatever it is. We don't have to dictate the what, as long as we encourage the how. Right? right. So, you know, just giving giving tools that young people can begin to make decisions for themselves and see that they have the power to change their lives. Give them the agency. Listen to their voice. Give them the opportunity. I saw that in my young students when I was at West Roxbury Academy in Boston for many, many years. And probably three years in a row, they wanted to shut us down because the West Roxbury Academy wanted that building out of there. Long story, but... 
every year I was the the leader of the student government. Every year we wrote letters, we collected signatures, we rallied, we went in front of the school committee, we were out there protesting and singing songs and chants and, you know, um, educating people around us as to why they shouldn't shut this down. There was no, there were no statistics that actually showed that we were failing, but they wanted to shut it down because there was the ulterior motives, there was politics involved, mm. it wasn't about the young people, you know, mm. but um, the community didn't really want Dorchester and Roxbury kids walking through West Roxbury. Wow. That's a bigger issue. That's something that's that's not about the young people. That's not about what they can do. Right. And unfortunately, they did succeed in shutting it down. But we fought. We fought valiantly. And um, I think that the, every student who was a part of those rallies felt empowered, felt like they could make a difference because they did. They were able to. You know, and um, they wrote their own speeches. They came out and presented their stuff. Um, Miguel wrote a, a rhyme uh, uh, honoring the young men and women who who were, you know, able to really rally their communities and say, hi, we, we matter. We're here. Why are you doing this? And there was usually no real good explanation. But we filled the school committee meetings with young people who were adamant about why we deserve the right to continue to fight for our school. And I think that that's the way to do it. You have to bring their voices in and they have to matter. If you just ask them and then ignore them, you're going to confirm their own doubts about their power. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I think it, it, we need to, to be able to teach... Um, young people to ask questions. Mm. And I think that that is a powerful tool that is also considered a threat for many people. Mm. When you start asking questions about how are these funds utilized? Yeah. When you start asking questions like, why is it that we have six periods, we have a pool, the only high school in the city of Boston has a pool, yet we're not allowed to swim in it, but a school nearby can walk with elementary students to the high school, swim in it, and leave. Mm. Now, I have a lot of experience walking with kids who are elementary students from one place to another. It takes a lot <laughs> to easy. do that. Yeah. But the fact that a school nearby can do that, while this public school, which, by the way, like, and I have an affinity to it because my brother like, went there. My yeah. sister went there. You know, It was just kind of weird because I was like, oh, my whole family went there. My nephew was going there. My, my cousin won the, the bronze medal in the city for swimming at West Roxbury High School, what was West Roxbury High School. And here we go, years later, they decided to divide the school in three, right? Why are we paying, using Bill Gates' money that he donated, three different principals a certain amount for a one-person job? Lexington High is not doing that. Mm -hmm. Haverhill High School is not doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. well, I'm, I'm guessing that Woodham <laughs> down the street is not doing that. Right. So why is it that we decide that the best tactic for education is to separate the school building into three different schools? Not to mention, like, their dynamic, the culture that gets lost with that. Right. So now your star of the basketball team is not having the same gym time as somebody else. And they can't go to each other's side of the school because if they do, it's considered trespassing and you can be expelled from that. Right. It was even worse. It was four schools, four schools feeding into one basketball team, one football team. How do you build a culture when you have this four competitive, competing, I should say, ideologies and beliefs about what you represent? It was it was bananas. Right. And then when the Bill Gates money ran out, they condensed the schools again. <laughs> it's just it's just crazy. And they're playing with people's lives. And and here we are watching Say by the Bell. <laughs> Right. Uh, expecting that reality. We're expecting that reality. Sure. That's what I thought it was going to be like. That's, that's how I thought my high school was going to be like until I was in Dorchester High walking around looking for my classroom. And they told me that my class is outside of the school building in satellites. satellites. Mm. And I'm like, why are the freshmen all outside of the school? <laughs> and there crazy. were all the different kind of rumors. So so again, my, my thing is like we need to be able to ask questions. And that rubs a lot of people the wrong way when you start asking questions about specific things. But in order to learn, you need to ask, mm -hmm. right? When, when it's not being given to you. And I think that there's a level of transparency that we need to have with all of these programs and organizations about how they're utilizing their funds and how are they plan to, you know, ensure that some of these projects are, are being done the way that they do. And then how can people from the community ac access them? 
Why is it that we have, um, we, we know that the census is super important, yet we don't have, and, and Lowell has um, the, the highest population of Cambodians, I think the second highest in the whole, in the whole country, mm. yet we don't have the census in their language. Why is that? Mm. You know, and, and that's when you start realizing or thinking or feeling the story that you tell yourself, right, is that this is purposeful because this is, this is the history of our country. You guys are listening to First Gen American. Miguel, I know that you've been doing a lot of work with the youth mm -hmm. uh, for a long time now. And I, I want you to talk a little bit about why you like doing what you're doing and why it's so important for the youth. Um, I feel like the youth are the most honest people uh, in many ways. They are just craving for that kind of love and that kind of camaraderie and connection. Even the kids, you know, I worked at a school um, called the Tilton Elementary School uh, for the YMCA in Haverhill. And, and I remember just hearing stories about the school. You know, there's a behavioral school and the kids do this and, you know, have done this and have done that. And, and none of the directors wanted to lead it. And, and sure enough, obviously, they, they decided to put me there. And what I found is what I always find in, in, in every single corner of the country when it comes to it is if you build something with young people or listen to young people, they're going to tell you what they really think mm -hmm. unfiltered, right? Because they haven't been taught yet for the most part, like how do you, how you should say something, how you should communicate something, you know, how you need to behave in certain settings, right? They're, they're pretty raw still at that age. So I love that about them. I love their honesty and I love that they wanna learn. And I believe that they are sponges. If you find what motivates them and what moves their engine, mm -hmm. um, they can do fantastic things. And, and for the most part, they can lead each other. Right. I've, I've definitely have tried to do my best to have young people tell me what they want out of the program and the organi and, and the organization and and um, have them basically become leaders within it and guide other young people, because I, I, I can see that power within them. And they're craving that. Right. Mm -hmm. They want to be on stage. They want to be in front of people. They want to be able to express themselves. Not everybody. Right. Um, but but many of them do. Um, so I, I think that for me, I, I feel like it's a great opportunity to help shift the gap um, and to help create change. Because if we can get to the young people and open their minds and be able to do conflict resolution early, mm -hmm. I think it, it creates a better world for us. Awesome, mm -hmm. awesome. Uh, what do you guys think it's important on building culture within our community? And we're gonna answer this real quick because we have like two minutes. Sure, I think uh, importance of building culture is the, um, the idea that you can create the world you want to live in. Um, I, I love working with young people because they're fun and they do say exactly what they mean and they're still developing. So you have the ability to implant hope and have them, um, you know, really change what we're doing and moving forward. I think about the question that I believe in the presidential um, debate this past Wednesday. I found that the question that that young eight-year-old girl asked was so profound, right? Where she was talking about how, why is it that people are interrupting each other when they're speaking? And, and I forgot right. what the rest of that question was, but it was so profound. And this was an eight-year-old. Yeah. Where can everybody reach you? We have um, QuinonesCultureConsultants.org. You can look us up. We have our website and um, you can find me on Instagram, Francellis121. Um, and we have Facebook pages under our name. So please look for us, Francellis and Miguel Quinones, Quinones Culture Consultants. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Quinones, such a blessing to have you. Thank you so much. This goes by fast. It did. Thank you guys. Um, truly blessing to your community and the youth. You guys are role models and definitely a positive, positive, positive individuals for our community. Thank you so much for joining us here in First Gen American. No Thank you problem. for having us.